Hello, and welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast, where together we explore ways to help you optimize your health and achieve sustainable well being. No one deserves to live an unhealthy life because they are overtasked, overstimulated, and overwhelmed. I'm your co host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and we'll be joined by Dr. Parker Hayes as we explore new perspectives and strategies rooted in self awareness, deep connections, and science based practices designed to create lasting impact for you and those around you. Please keep in mind this podcast is for the purpose of education, introspection, and community connection and should not be mistaken for medical advice. Be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lasting Impact Wellness, the podcast that helps you optimize your health and well-being through science-based practices, practical knowledge, and honest discussions. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Hayes. In today's episode, we're going into your home, down the hall to your bathroom and peeking inside your medicine cabinet to have a closer look at some of the over-the-counter medications that take up space in so many of our homes. And this could be medications, herbal supplements, vitamins, from pain relief to allergy management. These easily accessible remedies play a crucial role in our self-care routines and help manage minor ailments without a prescription. They help to provide relief for a range of conditions from acute pain, sinus congestion, upset stomach, diarrhea, the list goes on and on. But with so many available options, it can be confusing and sometimes feel daunting to find the right thing for your particular symptoms. And hopefully you can ask for help from your friendly neighborhood pharmacist. But for those of you listening, I've got one super smart guest joining today to talk through some of the science behind these medications, discuss their benefits and limitations, and provide you with valuable insights to make informed decisions about your health. Sean O'Brien, a fellow New Englander turned world traveler, is here with me today. Sean obtained his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences in Boston and later earned his Master of Public Health degree from Des Moines University. He joined the United States Army in 2010 and is currently a Lieutenant Colonel in the Medical Service Corps, serving as the Chief of Inpatient Pharmacy and Pharmacy Readiness at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. Sean's first assignment was at Bassett Army Community Hospital in Fort Rainwhite, Alaska, as Assistant Chief of Pharmacy Services. After a year in that role, he deployed to Afghanistan as the division pharmacist with the 10th Mountain Division Surgeon Cell in Kandahar. He then completed a pharmacy practice residency at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Sean successfully rose through the ranks of Deputy Clinical Pharmacy and Chief of Population Health at Walter Reed and was then stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas, serving as Chief of Pharmacy Services at Irwin Army Community Hospital. His journey then took him across the seas again, this time to Vicenza, Italy, where he served as Chief of Ancillary Services at the United States Army Health Clinic. Upon returning stateside, he then completed a postgraduate critical care pharmacy residency at Mass General Hospital in Boston. Sean is a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist and a board-certified critical care pharmacist. His military awards include the Bronze Star Medal, Meritorious Service Medal, Army Commendation Medal, the Joint Service Commendation Medal, the Joint Service Achievement Medal, and the Army Achievement Medal. Wow. Sean O'Brien, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to be talking with you today. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Hayes. It's it's great to be here with you today. Yeah, this is awesome. And wow, reading through your intro there, I, I mean, we've known each other for a long time, and I'm not sure I was even aware that you had all of those credentials and all of those medals, kudos to you. Congratulations. And thanks for your service. Of course. Wow. Awesome. Appreciate it. It's been fun 
staying friends with you for so long throughout the years as well. I know. I was telling Parker before we started recording that if we get through this interview without laughing or <laughs> impersonating one of our college professors, it will be a miracle. But well, but if we do, we do. And maybe they'll be listening all these years later. So again, happy to have you here. Tell our listeners a little bit more about kind of why you chose pharmacy, what drew you to that field of expertise and what you like about being a pharmacist. Yeah, great question. Never really thought about pharmacy throughout high school and then, you know, deciding what I wanted to do in college. However, senior year in high school, I ended up working at CVS Pharmacy as a cashier up front. And then they asked me to be a cashier in the actual pharmacy. At that time, I started learning about what pharmacists actually did. And I had no clue what their education was. I asked my pharmacist to go to med school and then you know, specialized. She's like, no, you go to pharmacy school. I had no idea. And so entering UMass, I was a pre-med major there, uh, but really started to really focus in on pharmacy for a couple different reasons. I was really interested on what the actual drug does to the body. I found it fascinating when I took, we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but when I took ibuprofen for a headache, how the drug knew exactly where to go in my body to work. So I really got fascinated by, I guess, what we call the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics of the drugs working in the pharmacy. And then I realized the prerequisites to get into medical school were pretty identical to get into pharmacy school. So taking those courses led me to be able to apply to pharmacy school a little bit earlier than getting a bachelor's degree. So it was not in the cards really at the beginning, and it, it just fate of life, I guess. The universe told me that's probably where I should end up and applied to pharmacy school. And then when did, forgive me for, I don't recall the timeline and our listeners certainly don't know you personally, but when did your decision to join the military come in? So after pharmacy school, I was offered a job in Sierra Vista, Arizona at CVS. And that location is right outside the gates of Fort Huachuca. And at that time, the army was overseas in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And army recruiters would come into the pharmacy saying, we really need healthcare professionals, including pharmacists. Would you be interested in joining the army? At first, I was like, heck no. But they were persistent and they talked about loan repayment. And really, Laura, I did want to join the army at a young age. I just didn't know that I could combine my desire to join the army with my profession being a pharmacist. And so again, as the universe collided, I was at the right place at the right time and the rest is history. I think a lot of people probably don't realize that you can still sort of honor your trade, honor your expertise and your profession, but also still be in the military. And you're a great example of that. Absolutely. All right. So as we mentioned in the intro today, we're going to pick your brain a little bit about just some common over-the-counter medications maybe clarify some questions that are often asked by patients. I know family and friends send me questions a lot about these seemingly benign over-the-counter therapeutics. And I'm hoping that you can help our listeners understand more about these medications that so many of us take and what the indications may be for one versus the other. What are some interactions we need to keep in mind when we're taking these? And then of course, potential side effects, which can be confusing and a lot of information for people to take in. So are you ready to jump in? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So let's just focus on the basics today. I may invite you again in the future to talk about some deeper topics in therapeutics and pharmacology, you know, controlled substances and more prescription medications, antihypertensives, things like that. But for today, we're just going to stick with the basics. So 
Let's start with, I think, two of the most common medications that people take over the counter, and that's ibuprofen and Tylenol. Walk us through kind of layman's terms, however in-depth you want to get, but what's the difference between these things? You got ibuprofen on one side of the aisle and Tylenol on the other side of the aisle, and they both are labeled for pain relief and fever reduction. That's one of the most common questions we get being a retail pharmacist. In general, you have ibuprofen, brand names, Advil, Motrin, and then Tylenol, generic name is acetaminophen. Oftentimes we ask, which one do I grab and for what reasons? I like to think of it in two different buckets. If you have pain or fever versus pain, fever, and inflammation. And so the the key difference there is being the inflammatory process or inflammation. Acetaminophen or Tylenol doesn't really affect the inflammatory process in the body at all. Whereas ibuprofen and other NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as naproxen, ibuprofen, they really focus on the anti-inflammatory properties in the body. And they work similarly in the body, but acetaminophen doesn't really affect the cyclooxygenase or COX pathway in the body, whereas ibuprofen and the other NSAIDs, that's really their claim to fame. They will block that process from prostaglandins, which is the inflammatory response in the body, and those drugs will block that process from occurring. Acetaminophen, it's not fully elucidated on how it works. However, it is thought to work on its pain relief through serotonergic inhibition in the body. And so they do work totally differently, but the main difference to focus on that your NSAIDs or ibuprofen have more anti-inflammatory process than your acetaminophen or Tylenol, which we really focus on for just pain or fever. That's a great summary. So I think to take it a step further than for our listeners, What I often tell patients is if you've got an inflammatory process, so that could be a sprained ankle, a swollen joint, an abrasion that's painful, something that is sort of red and inflamed, then that tends to lend better toward ibuprofen where you are getting that anti-inflammatory effect. But a common misconception that we can clarify here is that these drugs can be taken together. So can you speak a little bit about that? Patients often ask me, can I take Tylenol with this? Or I will advise them to take ibuprofen and Tylenol. And they immediately say, well, wait a minute, do I have to alternate them? Can I take them together? Is that safe? Can you comment on that? So it goes back to the mechanism I previously described. And so, yes, the bottom line there is that you can take both safely together or you can stagger them because they do work differently in the body. Also, if you want to stagger these medications, if you want to work on your anti-inflammatory process, take your ibuprofen, and then two to three hours later, you have the headache and still want to fever reduce, you can take that Tylenol, you can do that staggering approach, or they are safe to take at the same time because they do work differently in the body. And are synergistic as well when it comes to certain aspects such as pain relief. I know there have been some studies done over the last decade or so as we've been trying to cut back on opioid pain medication for acute pain. And studies have shown there is that synergistic benefit of taking the ibuprofen with the Tylenol and how their pain relief works together and provides even more pain relief for the person taking it. So again, just being able to take them both together at the same time safely. What are some potential side effects of each of those? You can start with one and then go to the other. And maybe who should avoid one or the other? What underlying conditions? 
Yeah. And so I'll start with acetaminophen or Tylenol. Usually we consider that a little bit more benign in terms of side effects. Big side effects is usually a little upset stomach for that. So we recommend it with food. Whereas the NSAIDs really come with a myriad of side effects that can be potentially dangerous. They have bleeding effects in the body. And so we watch for gastric bleeding or blood in the stomach, but they affect the kidney as well. And so folks that have kidney disease, acute kidney disease or chronic kidney disease, we usually stay away from the ibuprofen and NSAIDs. If you have active peptic ulcer disease or bleeding in the stomach or in the intestinal tract, we usually steer clear of the NSAIDs. And it's important to note too that Tylenol is usually our drug of choice for pregnant patients, whereas we steer clear of those NSAIDs such as ibuprofen in pregnancy. And then I guess to take that just one step further, keeping Tylenol in mind and Motrin too, or I should say ibuprofen since it includes all of those, patients do get confused. Okay, if I have kidney troubles, I actually have a lot of patients who say I can't take Tylenol because of my kidneys. And then I find that I have to re-educate them that it's actually ibuprofen that they need to avoid because of their kidneys. So Tylenol, I think of more liver down the liver pathway. So if you have liver failure or you have cirrhosis, or maybe you're a chronic alcoholic or something like that, then Tylenol, it's not going to be the best for you. Yeah, you bring up a great point. And Tylenol or acetaminophen, we certainly are concerned about those with active liver disease or chronic liver disease, because that's where the drug is metabolized. And so if you don't have a properly functioning liver, you can you have risk of accumulation for toxicity with your acetaminophen. Where does aspirin fit in? That's a question that I get asked a lot. And if aspirin is also considered an NSAID or a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, then how does that fit in? What is what is aspirin useful for? Why do some people take that as opposed to something else? So it is considered still an NSAID, but in the pathway in the body, it works on a, a mechanism on thromboxane A2 in the body. And that's a fancy way of saying it works on clotting factors. And so what it does is it actually inhibits a lot of your clotting factors in the body. And so while it is an NSAID, it has an additional mechanism of action in the body that ibuprofen and the other NSAIDs do not. And so ibuprofen does not go down that thromboxane A2. And so it doesn't really inhibit your clotting like aspirin does. And while aspirin is very beneficial for some pain, fever reduction, et cetera, we tend not to use aspirin today for those reasons because it does have that clotting inhibition property to it. We often use aspirin for patients that we need to thin the blood, if you will, in different disease states, such as stroke or heart attack. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense as to why we use aspirin in those disease states as opposed to taking a Motrin, because clearly we need that antiplatelet effect that you mentioned. So, okay, let's summarize that class of drugs for anybody listening. We talked about ibuprofen, Tylenol, and aspirin. So ibuprofen, think pain reliever, fever reducer, but also added bonus of anti-inflammatory response. So things like the flu, ibuprofen, great, headache, great, but also great for sprained ankle, anything that really has an inflammatory component to it as well. And that can even be seen in things like muscle strains, low back pain, things like that. Moving on to Tylenol benefits, I would say, again, I'm summarizing here, but benefits would be pain reliever and fever reducer, but you don't get that anti-inflammatory response. And then aspirin kind of in a category of its own, even though it is an NSAID really reserved for that antithrombotic or those disease states where we really want to 
kind of thin the blood, like you mentioned, but not necessarily use it as much for the fever and the pain, even though it would help in those situations. And then commenting on side effects and contraindications real quick, ibuprofen and aspirin, we would want to be cautious in patients who have a previous history of gastritis or GI bleeding or ulcers, patients with kidney disease would be, we'd want them to avoid NSAIDs as well, but safely could take Tylenol in those cases likely. And then for Tylenol, really main category would be people who have an intolerance to it from a hepatic or liver standpoint. So patients with liver failure would be avoiding Tylenol. Anything else you want to add on those? And then maybe we'll move on to a different category. I think just oftentimes another question we get is which one to grab if there's brand names, generic, you have tablet, you have capsule, you have soft gels. And so I quickly would like to mention if if there's a generic, I would say watch your wallet. So I would grab the cheapest. They're all FDA approved. And so the Food and Drug Administration has tight control over these over-the-counter medications. And so bottom line is grab the cheapest one. One's not better than the other in terms of brand name versus generic. And then if you want one to work a little bit quicker, grab that liquid gel. It opens up quicker in your stomach and it can work a little bit quicker than your tablet and your capsule that have to have time to dissolve. So just quick note there. Okay, thanks. And real quick, before we move on to a different category of OTC drugs, where does Aleve fit in? That one tends to be a little unique in that you don't take it as often as you would a Motrin or an Advil. Can you just talk about that briefly for people who really like Aleve as opposed Mm to, you know, run-of-the-mill ibuprofen or Motrin or Advil? What's the difference there? Uh, Great question. And I'd like to point out that in any trial, no NSAID has been proven better than the other in terms of pain and inflammation for over-the-counter use. Oftentimes people say this one's better. Well, the trials in medical journals don't show that. But what we do know is that one patient may like one versus the other. And so bottom line is you can pick whatever one works for you better. If you like naproxen, it is an NSAID. It's in the same drug class as ibuprofen. And if that one works better for you, you can stick to it. It does come as a class side effect. So one isn't worse or better in terms of the side effects we previously mentioned. All right. So that was a lot of talk on ibuprofen and Tylenol and aspirin. I Probably that's the most I've ever talked about those drugs ever, but hopefully that clarifies for some people. And I think one last caveat would be, we're not talking about pediatric medications here, but it's similar considerations. I do get patients who ask sometimes, Hey, can I give my kid like a half of an adult Tylenol or something like that? And I would feel very strongly that the answer is no, those medications are dosed accordingly, specifically weight-based for children. So we can save pediatric drugs for another talk. So when we're talking about all these things today, let's just assume that we're talking about adults. Absolutely. So another category of drugs sort of near and dear to my heart. I like to, I don't know if I should be proud of this or not, but I have coined myself the constipation queen at my hospital. And I have a whole pre-scripted chat that I give to patients who come in with digestive issues because I've spent a lot of years of my own life dealing with my own digestive issues and exploring with medications and remedies. But I do think, again, this is another category or class of drugs where there's a lot of confusion and a lot of kind of misinformation out there. So let's talk 
GI for a little while, if you're on board with that. And I think we could break that down into a few different categories. When I think of GI health, it's indigestion. So kind of that upset stomach heartburn, you know, that feeling you get after you maybe ate a big pizza and had a glass of red wine. So indigestion and then constipation, which of course is its own giant category and then diarrhea. So indigestion, constipation, diarrhea, which one do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with indigestion. Oftentimes someone comes to the pharmacy counter and says, I have heartburn. There's a lot of different disease states that can cause indigestion. And so it's kind of important to chisel down a little bit more of what's causing that indigestion in the patient. It could just be triggered by food that's highly acidic in the body. It could be caused by GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease. It can be caused by peptic ulcer disease. And so I think it's really important to understand that indigestion can be caused by many different factors in the body. And I will caveat that by saying that if you have the occasional heartburn or indigestion and your over-the-counters work for you, that's great. But oftentimes patients kind of self-diagnose. And so if your heartburn or indigestion is really not getting better by any remedy over the counter, it, it is important to see your primary care provider to ensure that nothing more serious is going on. Mm, thank you for mentioning that. Yes. Okay. So you mentioned a couple things there. Let's start with antacids. So I think of antacids and that would be your Tums, your Rolaids. That's kind of for that person, like you mentioned, who gets heartburn every once in a while, they ate a highly acidic meal, they get a little upset stomach, they reach for the antacid, that Rolaids or that Tums. And, and then if you're kind of needing it more often, then your doctor may prescribe either a H2 blocker or a PPI that we call them. And maybe you can walk through those. And even though they are prescribed, sometimes they are also available over the counter. So I think that's why it's okay. important to talk through them and what the difference is and what their indications are. Sure. You mentioned at the beginning, you're antacids and most of them are calcium carbonate. So your Tums, your your Maalox, they come in liquid, they come in the chewable tablets that you see. And that's really for immediate relief from something that you just ate or some or trigger that causes your indigestion. And it's a unique that it works locally in the GI tract. So it's basically just putting a coat around your GI tract, suppressing the acid, and it works rather quickly. However, if you're noticing that your indigestion is not being relieved by your typical two tablets of Tums, you're increasing the amount that you usually take. You mentioned that we might have to go to something a little bit stronger, like an H2 blocker. Often back in the day, it used to be ranitidine or Zantac, which has been removed from the market. And now Pepsid or Famotidine is the most common one. You also may see Cimetidine over the counter. And I, and I do think I should mention that in general, I would steer clear of cimetidine. It comes with a lot of drug-drug interactions, and it's just typically not safe to use today. And so if you are one of those that are, keep grabbing that Tagamet or cimetidine, I do highly recommend talking to your provider or pharmacist about switching to perhaps famotidine, which is the most typical H2 blocker that we see today. Um, and then also in a drug class, you mentioned PPI, which stands for proton pump inhibitors. And if we go back to chemistry a little bit, proton is the acid in your stomach. And so we really are focusing on suppressing those acid pumps in your GI tract to suppress the acid production there. And common brand names of that or generic names is a meprazole or Prilosec OTC. 
Nexium is also over the counter now. It's its cousin to Omeprazole. And then you might be prescribed something called Pantoprazole in the brand name of Protonics. And typically we use the H2 blockers or PPIs for indigestion or heartburn that we can't control with your typical Tums. It's important to note that they do not work right away. And so oftentimes you have to counsel your patient. It may take some days to work for max benefit, especially your proton pump inhibitors. That can take sometimes up to five to seven days to really suppress those acid pumps that we previously described. So it's important to note, don't be discouraged if you take a couple doses of your famotidine, your H2 blocker, or your proton pump inhibitor, and it's really not working for you right away. It's typical. And so we really need to keep a regular dosing schedule for the patient to see maximal benefit. But in the meantime, as those drugs are working in the gut, you may still take your Tums for immediate relief while those drugs are building up in the body to work for its maximal benefit. Hmm. And you mentioned this already, but I think it's worth repeating that these medications, because a lot of other medications that you take are starting to be absorbed in the stomach, that's where you're digesting things, that's where you're starting that process of of medication, food, drug absorption, they can have a lot of interactions with your other medications. So when you're picking one of these things up over the counter, it really helps to just stop and talk to the pharmacist. And I know, you know, they're overworked, they're busy, you have to wait a while, but it's important to know if what you're already taking or you're prescribed by your primary provider, and then you're going to the pharmacy and you're picking up some over-the-counter remedies, really understanding how they could potentially interact. Sometimes these types of medications can, correct me if I'm wrong, can reduce the efficacy of some of the other medications that you take, for example. And even if they may be safe to take together, your pharmacist might recommend, we'll take this one in the morning, wait an hour, and then take this other medication that you're prescribed. Exactly. And and it's very important, especially when you start grabbing those H2 or PPIs or the proton pump inhibitors to just do that drug-drug interaction screen with your pharmacist or provider. Like you said, most of the time, those interactions are benign. Sometimes they can be serious. And sometimes we just, as you suggested, have some mechanisms to ensure safety with the other drugs that the patient may be taking. Mm -hmm. So as we're talking, Sean, I'm thinking about what we talk about at Lasting Impact all the time, and that is having self-awareness, understanding your body, knowing your cues, your red flags, trying to understand what your body's telling you. And I do think with the accessibility of all these over-the-counter drugs, it can be easy to sort of mask your symptoms. Okay, I have a persistent headache, and now I'm taking ibuprofen every single day. And suddenly I'm taking it now every single day for, you know, 10 days, two weeks or something like that. And similarly for these digestive medications, particularly these antacids, as you mentioned, you know, people might get persistent heartburn and then they find they're taking Tums plus they're taking Pepsid plus they're taking Prilosec. And suddenly they're on all three of these medications, but yet they haven't really stopped to look at what the potential triggers could be, whether that's their diet, whether it's stress, whether they actually have an infection causing that or creating an ulcer or something like that. So I guess I'm taking this little break to say everyone listening has heard of these drugs, probably has these in their medicine cabinets and has seen them or taken them themselves. But if you notice that you're starting to repurchase and start taking these pretty often, then that's probably a good time to just take that pause and say, okay, what's going on here? What do I need to adjust in my life or my diet or in my health? And and kind of bring it back to basics for yourself for a bit. 
Yeah, great point. And I think that's important to note. If you're taking more than you usually do of these over-the-counter medications, it's imperative you go see your primary care provider. Now, oftentimes you will be diagnosed by your provider and part of your regimen is an over-the-counter medication and that can be okay. But you just want to ensure that that conversation about that prolonged over-the-counter use is part of your conversation with your provider. Yeah. So trying to avoid that self-diagnosis and self-medicating for for any period of time, but certainly for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, that's good advice. All right, let's get to it. Let's talk constipation and diarrhea. And we can kind of do rapid fire even. Let's say you're constipated and let's assume you don't have irritable bowel syndrome, you're constipated and you're drinking all the water, you're doing all the stuff and you're sitting there and you're in the aisle and you're thinking to yourself, okay, do I get a stool softener or I get a laxative? Do I get Miralax? What do I get here? Just okay. give us a good summary there. Wait, yes. When you go to the laxative section, there is plethora of medications you can choose. I learned in pharmacy school, sometimes you need the mush with the push. Um, <laughs> and it, 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 it makes sense, right? So in other words, you got to soften it up and, get it, it up. and get it out. Okay, yeah, yeah. gotcha. So, All right. Most of the -the over-the-counter laxatives or stool softeners that we have are trying to do two things. Bring water into the GI tract. We do know that water is the main propellant of, I guess, the push, if you will, sometimes. And it also can work on the mush as well. (laughs) Um, And then other medications work directly on the GI tract to propel peristalsis, our movement of the GI tract to have a bowel movement. And so that's really typically how I think of these laxatives over the counter. They're either either trying to pull water into the GI tract or they're really trying to get the GI tract to increase its peristalsis or movement. And so let's talk stool softeners first. It's important to note that all stool softeners are laxatives, but not all laxatives are stool softeners. Little caveat there, but mm, okay. important to note. The most common stool softener we see over the counter is something called docusate or colase. I will say there's new literature in the trials that show that colase is no better than placebo. And so if you want to save some money, you might not want to grab that colase because it's really no better than drinking a lot of water throughout the day. Hmm. That's news Uh, to me. That's good to know. But that's the biggest stool softener we have over the counter. And then the laxatives. So the laxatives tend to work, like I just said, either by bringing in water in the GI tract. And so we have a couple of those, one being polyethylene glycol, the brand name being Miralax. We also have something called magnesium citrate, which also brings an osmotic gradient into the GI tract, which in a nutshell is basically bringing more water into the GI tract. There's also milk of magnesia. There is Pepto-Bismol. Pepto-Bismol works in a unique way that it really attacks all different mechanisms. And then we also have enemas or suppositories. And one often asks, which one do I grab and why? It all depends on A, how quickly you want the medication to start working. And oftentimes we kind of choose that based on different factors. But if you want something really fast acting, I would recommend grabbing the magnesium citrate or a suppository or enema. Your Miralax or polyethylene glycol takes several days to work. So we usually use that for chronic constipation with assistance from an over-the-counter medication. And so that's really the difference between the laxatives that we see over the counter, how it works and how quickly we really want it to start working in the body. So do you think that there's any utility for stool softeners or not necessarily? I mean, you mentioned 
Colace isn't really proven to be better than placebo in recent trials. Can you see any utility in a stool softener versus just having somebody take Marilax for a few days, but having a more gentle forward movement, if you will? I think the place in therapy for a stool softener is oftentimes these trials do miss individual experiences. And so if you've had success with stool softeners, your colace, your docusate in the past, and it works for you, I'm not saying don't buy those anymore and stop taking them. Uh, because the trials show that it's not better than placebo. However, I would recommend perhaps if you've never tried a stool softener before, you may want to just start increasing your water intake to see if that supplements the kind of mush, if you will, that the stool softener is providing. Because oftentimes just increasing your fluid intake can do the same thing as a over-the-counter medication. Okay, great. All right, let's move on. So let's say we've got too much mush and too much push, and we are in the (laughs) diarrhea category now, and we are at a loss for words as to how to treat this. And before you comment, I will say that what I often tell patients is, you know, like so many of these things, there are caveats, there are other factors to consider, and particularly with diarrheal illnesses, Mm-hmm. You know, again, we're talking about just the person who maybe they've seen their doctor or they've been on an antibiotic or something and they're starting to get some GI upset from that and some diarrhea from that. We're not talking about people who have bloody diarrhea or a diarrheal illness where they're having high fevers or something like that. When you are potentially reaching for an anti diarrheal agent, at the pharmacy over the counter, we're assuming for this conversation that you're otherwise feeling pretty healthy. You just happen to have the runs. So with that caveat stated, I always think of it as you either have a kind of anti-motility. So stopping the forward movement, you have Mm -hmm. bulking agents, like your fiber category that kind of bulk up the stool. And then the secondary category or other category, there would be probiotics where you're repopulating your gut with the good stuff to try to help the GI tract get to a more balanced state and Mm -hmm. stop the diarrhea that way. Great, great question. And I think the most important thing to mention about diarrhea is your fluid loss, right? And so first thing that you should think about with diarrhea is making sure that you replace your fluid loss and perhaps your electrolyte. So sodium, potassium, et cetera, are also being excreted through your diarrhea in that fluid loss. And so oftentimes we may recommend Gatorade or Pedialyte to replace those electrolytes and water loss due to the diarrhea. And so very important to keep that in mind, I would say before you grab a anti-motility over-the-counter medication. But talking about drugs, we often think of Imodium or loperamide and that works to slow the gut tract down. It actually works a little bit on the opioid receptors in the brain. And we will discuss future talks perhaps about controlled substances and opioids, but just know that it's a distant cousin of an opioid. It does work a little bit on the opioid receptors, which slows the gut down. Then you mentioned bulk forming agents like Metamucil. Basically it's high fiber. It works locally in the GI tract and it's trying to form a stool due to its high fiber and local mechanism of action in the GI tract. Just know that if you are going to take a bulk forming agent, because it works locally in the gut, other medications may not be absorbed. So it's important to talk to your provider or pharmacist about different ways we can make sure your other medications are absorbed if you are taking a bulk forming agent such as Metamucil for diarrhea or other indications. 
one thing I often tell my patients is look, sometimes when you have diarrhea, it's your body's way of saying, I need to get this stuff out of there. So I'm personally very particular about stopping that process. But as you mentioned, if someone's at the point where they're getting really dehydrated, they can't keep up with their losses through their GI tract, despite how much fluids they're taking in or drinking, then yes, a conversation with your primary provider and or your pharmacist to just say, hey, what's the most gentle thing I can take? And these are certainly not things that you want to be taking on a regular basis for a prolonged period of time. I think one of the healthier options, if we can say it that way, would be probiotics. I mentioned this a little bit, that essentially what you're doing by taking probiotics is repopulating your gut with the healthy bacteria to try to counteract and counterbalance what the bad bacteria is doing in there and wreaking havoc on your intestine. Are there different types of probiotics that people can get over the counter? Are there some that are better than others? What should someone be looking for if they're reaching for a probiotic, assuming they don't like yogurt and want to buy a supplement over the counter? Typically, the probiotics over the counter, they differ in doses for the most part. You have the most common one being lactobacillus over the counter. And one probiotic hasn't been proven to be better than the other. Oftentimes, we just may need to manipulate dosing to alleviate your symptoms for your natural flora, as you mentioned, to repopulate. So oftentimes, it's just really manipulation. And I think the population where we can see the benefit is as I briefly mentioned, patients or people who are on antibiotics for some other reason, let's say they have pneumonia or they have a urinary tract infection and their doctor prescribes an antibiotic, it kind of can eradicate all of the bacteria in your gut, all the good ones too, that are helping you stay balanced. So in those situations, that can be a good time for someone to supplement and take a probiotic. Yogurt's great too, but some people don't like that and prefer to go grab something over the counter. So, but again, chatting with the pharmacist and saying, Hey, this is the medication I'm prescribed. I'm starting to have some GI upset. What do you recommend? What are my probiotic options out there? Absolutely. Okay. So that was antacids, constipation, diarrhea. All (laughs) right. Let's, let's tackle one more topic and then we can wrap up. How about as a final topic, we combine two categories because I do think there is some overlap there. So allergies, antihistamines, and then cough and cold medications. Mm -hmm. And let's say if you're like I am and you live in the Carolinas and there are allergies all year round, Mm -hmm. what are some considerations when someone feels like, Hey, I've got some allergic type symptoms or my doctor even said, Hey, pick up an over-the-counter allergy medicine for your seasonal allergies. What are some considerations that people should keep in mind when they're trying to select one versus the other? When we think of antihistamines for allergies, our first generation antihistamine was Benadryl or diphenhydramine. But you see some of the newer, we call them generation two antihistamines, such as your Claritin, such as your Allegra, Fexafenidine. You see Flonase nasal spray over the counter in Sertrazine or Zyrtec. So there's second generations that we typically see now versus your Benadryl. Oftentimes, it is patient-specific, like we mentioned about ibuprofen versus naproxen. One is not better than the other in terms of controlling allergies. Sometimes we grab one versus the other based on side effect profile. Something to really focus on is drowsiness with these medications. Benadryl, the diphenhydramine, comes with a lot of sedating properties at generation one. And so if your work lifestyle balance needs to be alert and oriented, I would steer clear of that diphenhydramine or Benadryl because it is so sedating. The generation twos tend to be less sedating. However, Zyrtec or Sertrazine out of Claritin 
Zyrtec and Allegra. Zyrtec tends to be a little bit more drowsy. So if you're looking to be more alert throughout the day, you don't want any drowsiness. I would recommend grabbing the Fexafenidine or Allegra or the Claritin or Loratadine. So that's usually how we typically pick one or the other for over-the-counter uses. Oftentimes, patients swear by one versus the other. They've tried one, it hasn't worked. They've tried another one, and it works miraculously. And so we just typically say which one works best for you is the one you should continue to take. What about when there's a D added? Can you talk to the audience a little bit about that? I have my own little speech I give to patients, but you know, you might be standing there and you think, oh, Claritin works great for a lot of people. What do I get Claritin or I get Claritin D? Do I get Allegra or Allegra D? Can you comment on? Great. So that D stands for decongestion. Going back to Benadryl, the diphenhydramine, it works for allergies, but it also is a great drying property because it's an anticholinergic as well. And so what we've tried to do with the second generations is add a decongestant to the antihistamine to get that drying property in a different mechanism than Benadryl just has it naturally because it's an anticholinergic as well. And so it's a decongestant added to the antihistamine for kind of that runny nose. If you're just, you know, you're taking it just a plain antihistamine, but the nose just keeps on running. You want to dry up that nose. You can get a decongestant that way. And that's what that D stands for. There are two popular ones, decongestants that are built in there. Typically for your pseudoephedrine, which is an antihistamine, it's behind the counters now because people got creative and started making crystal meth with it. It's not because it's more dangerous than it used to be. They're just controlling it because people got creative and made a illegal substance out of it. But something to look for for decongestant is if you have high blood pressure, Pseudoephedrine works on the alpha receptors, which can cause an increase in blood pressure. It doesn't mean you can't use them. It just means you have to have further conversation with your provider or pharmacist. If your blood pressure is under control with medications, you can safely take these medications for a short amount of time. But if your blood pressure is not controlled and you plan to take these, it warrants a conversation with your provider or pharmacist. And I always think of that D and pseudoephedrine for sure as very, can be very stimulating for some people as well, where if you're sensitive, you have a history of a cardiac arrhythmia or you're prone to fast heart rate or something like that. Um, Or if you're just very sensitive to medications, it's probably best to grab the one without the D where you don't get that extra little potential stimulant effect. Is that, am I correct with that or... Exactly. And then it goes back to that alpha mechanism in the body. You get kind of that fight or flight, if you will, increase heart rate, increase blood pressure um, mm-hmm. because of that mechanism. Correct. Right. So, and we see some of that same ingredient profile in cough and cold medications, correct? Correct. Okay. So let's talk about those a little bit. We've got decongestants and then cough suppressants and things. Sure. And I think it, it's a great, you know, culmination of the conversation today, because often cough and cold medications is just a combination of what we've described. You often see Tylenol with pseudoephedrine, with an antihistamine, and then perhaps a cough medication. So it's important when you grab a cough and cold medication, turn the box, turn the label around to see what the active ingredients are. And hopefully you learned a little bit more today than you did yesterday in terms of what those active ingredients are doing. So oftentimes with the cough and cold, they're just combining a bunch of medications to control what your symptoms are in one product. For cough, I always ask, do you have a dry hacking cough or do you have a productive cough? 
I asked that question because the two most common over-the-counter cough medications that we see are dextromethorphan, which kind of suppresses your cough, or guafenicin, which is an expectorant. Guafenicin comes in either mucinex, the tablet, or robitussin, the liquid. They're both guafenicin. My recommendation for folks is the mucinex. Studies have shown that you need a minimum of 600 milligrams, which is one tablet of mucinex, to be somewhat productive, no pun intended. And then dextromethorphan is the brand name is Delsum. And usually we recommend that for a dry hacking cough. But bottom line there is they will often combine all these ingredients into one product. And depending on what your symptoms are and you're trying to control, watch the label to ensure that you're grabbing the product that suits your needs. Great. And out of those two categories of cough treatments or cough medicines, cough suppressants, the dextromethorphan and the guifenesin, which one, if either, is safer for patients who have hypertension or other chronic diseases? If you had to say which one of them had a better safety profile, which would it be? I would recommend the guafenicin, the mucinex. The dextromethorphan, it has potential for abuse and comes with more of the side effect profile that you just mentioned, increased blood pressure. So if I had to grab one, I'd grab the guafenicin. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, that was a lot of stuff to talk about. And we, I feel like if we were standing in the aisle at a local pharmacy right now, we would have only moved down maybe two of the aisles and there are so many more, but an important conversation. So before we wrap up, are there any final key considerations or key points that you want to cover for our listeners? Thanks for having me again today. We talked a lot about different over-the-counter OTC medications to grab. The main takeaway for me is to ensure that you talk to your provider or pharmacist before you select any of these OTCs. Although we may think they're all benign because they are over-the-counter, that isn't necessarily true. We have to make sure that you take the appropriate amount so you're not overdosing. They can come with drug-drug interactions. And we also want to make sure you're picking the right product for your symptoms. We don't want to want you to pick a product that's not going to work for you and waste your money or time. So please, before you select a product, go to your pharmacist and let that pharmacist help you select the best product for you. That's great advice. And also I'll add to that, remembering that these things are meant for short-term relief. We talked about it a bit in our discussion here that these are just kind of a occasional thing or a short-term relief for a short-term symptom. And if you're having persistent or severe symptoms, then that really should prompt a visit to your doctor. And I think one of the most important factors when it comes to pharmaceuticals and therapeutics is really for people to know and keep track of what they're taking and know the potential interactions with their drugs, their prescription drugs, and their over-the-counter remedies. And beyond that, it's crucial to communicate with your healthcare provider. And as I mentioned, pharmacists are a great resource. You're already there. You're standing in the aisle. You're about to pick the medication. Use them as a resource. Ask questions. They are experts in all of this. So really important to utilize those people who are there to help. And the last thing is if when asked what medications are you taking by your provider or the nurse, make sure that you include your over-the-counter medications in that list. We don't want to duplicate a drug that works similarly with the medications that you're taking over the counter. Great, great advice. 
Well, Sean, that was a lot from <laughs> headaches to <laughs> diarrhea and cough and cold. So I really appreciate your expertise. I will have my new favorite phrase, the mush with the push to take with me forever <laughs> because it's, it's amazing. So thank you for your time and your energy. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Of course. And I hope as you all listen to this, you have a little better clarification as to some of those medications that may be sitting in your medicine cabinet or the ones in the aisle when it seems overwhelming with all the signs and the colors and the advertising and the packaging. As always, thank you all for your time and your energy. If you know someone who might benefit from the content in this episode, contribute to their well-being by sharing it with them. Your feedback and topic suggestions are welcome at info at lastingimpactwellness.com. Reach out, connect with us, visit us on the web to learn more about our well-being programs for individuals and organizations. Thanks again for listening. Let's be well together.